Welcome to the Unknown Friends podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and I'm so glad you've joined me today. From late July to the end of August, we are taking a short break from our usual weekly book reviews, and instead I'm reading aloud the complete novel Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton. If you haven't yet listened to my introduction to Man Alive and my brief analysis of the book's characters and themes, check out my most recent book review, episode 26 of season 2, from July 14th. Today's episode is an unabridged recording of the first half of Man Alive, chapter 6, but be aware that my narration occasionally deviates from the original text when I encounter profanity or offensive language. This happens very rarely, but I am omitting one or two words in this chapter since I'm not comfortable using that kind of language. That said, I think and I hope you will enjoy the first half of this chapter of Man Alive. Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton Chapter 6 The Eye of Death, or The Murder Charge The dining room of the Dukes had been set out for the Court of Beacon with a certain impromptu pomposity that seemed somehow to increase its coziness. The big room was, as it were, cut up into small rooms, with walls only waist-high, the sort of separation that children make when they are playing at shops. This had been done by Moses Gould and Michael Moon, the two most active members of this remarkable inquiry, with the ordinary furniture of the place. At one end of the long mahogany table was set the one enormous garden chair, which was surmounted by the old torn tent or umbrella, which Smith himself had suggested as a coronation canopy. Inside this erection could be perceived the dumpy form of Mrs. Duke, with cushions and a form of countenance that already threatened slumber. At the other end sat the accused Smith, in a kind of dock, for he was carefully fenced in with a quadrilateral of light bedroom chairs, any of which he could have tossed out the window with his big toe. He had been provided with pens and paper, out of the latter of which he made paper boats, paper darts, and paper dolls contentedly throughout the whole proceedings. He never spoke or even looked up, but seemed as unconscious as a child on the floor of an empty nursery. On a row of chairs raised high on the top of a long settee sat the three young ladies with their backs up against the window, and Mary Gray in the middle. It was something between a jury box and the stall of the Queen of Beauty at a tournament. Down the center of the long table, Moon had built a low barrier out of eight bound volumes of good words to express the moral wall that divided the conflicting parties. On the right side sat the two advocates of the prosecution, Dr. Pym and Mr. Gould, behind a barricade of books and documents, chiefly, in the case of Dr. Pym, solid volumes of criminology. On the other side, Moon and Inglewood, for the defense, were also fortified with books and papers, but as these included several old yellow volumes by Ouida and Wilkie Collins, the hand of Mr. Moon seemed to have been somewhat careless and comprehensive. As for the victim and prosecutor, Dr. Warner, Moon wanted at first to have him kept entirely behind a high screen in the corner, 
urging the indelicacy of his appearance in court, but privately assuring him of an unofficial permission to peep over the top now and then. Dr. Warner, however, failed to rise to the chivalry of such a course, and after some little disturbance and discussion, he was accommodated with a seat on the right side of the table in a line with his legal advisers. It was before this solidly established tribunal that Dr. Cyrus Pym, after passing a hand through the honey-colored hair over each ear, rose to open the case. His statement was clear and even restrained, and such flights of imagery as occurred in it only attracted attention by a certain indescribable abruptness, not uncommon in the flowers of American speech. He planted the points of his ten frail fingers on the mahogany, closed his eyes, and opened his mouth. "'The time has gone by,' he said, "'when murder could be regarded as a moral and individual act, important, perhaps, to the murderer, perhaps, to the murdered. Science has profoundly—' Here he paused, poising his compressed finger and thumb in the air, as if he were holding an elusive idea very tight by its tail, Then he screwed up his eyes and said, Modified, and let it go. Has profoundly modified our view of death. In superstitious ages, it was regarded as the termination of life, catastrophic and even tragic, and was often surrounded by solemnity. Brighter days, however, have dawned, and we now see death as universal and inevitable as part of that great, soul-stirring, and heart-upholding average which we call, for convenience, the order of nature. In the same way, we have come to consider murder socially, rising above the mere private feelings of a man while being forcibly deprived of life, we are privileged to behold murder as a mighty whole to see the rich rotation of the cosmos, bringing as it brings the golden harvests and the golden-bearded harvesters the return forever of the slayers and the slain. He looked down, somewhat affected with his own eloquence, coughed slightly, putting up four of his pointed fingers with the excellent manners of Boston, and continued... There is but one result of this happier and humaner outlook which concerns the wretched man before us. It is that, thoroughly elucidated by a Milwaukee doctor, our great secret-guessing Sonnenschein, in his great work, The Destructive Type. We do not denounce Smith as a murderer, but rather as a murderous man. The type is such that its very life, I might say its very health, is in killing. Some hold that it is not properly an aberration, but a newer and even a higher creature. My dear old friend, Dr. Bolger, who kept ferrets, here Moon suddenly ejaculated aloud, Hurrah! but so instantaneously resumed his tragic expression that Mrs. Duke looked everywhere else for the sound. Dr. Pym continued somewhat sternly, Who, in the interests of knowledge, kept ferrets, felt that the creature's ferocity is not utilitarian, 
but absolutely an end in itself. However this may be with ferrets, it is certainly so with the prisoner. In his other iniquities, you may find the cunning of the maniac, but his acts of blood have almost the simplicity of sanity. But it is the awful sanity of the sun and the elements, a cruel, an evil sanity. As soon stay the iris-lipped cataracts of our virgin west as stay the natural force that sends him forth to slay. No environment, however scientific, could have softened him. Place that man in the silver-silent purity of the palest cloister, and there will be some deed of violence done with the crozier or the alb. Rear him in a happy nursery, amid our brave-browed Anglo-Saxon infancy, and he will find some way to strangle with the skipping rope or brain with the brick. Circumstances may be favorable, training may be admirable, hopes may be high, but the huge elemental hunger of Innocent Smith for blood will in its appointed season burst like a well-timed bomb. Arthur Inglewood glanced curiously for an instant at the huge creature at the foot of the table, who was fitting a paper figure with a cocked hat, and then looked back at Dr. Pym, who was concluding in a quieter tone. It only remains for us, he said, to bring forward actual evidence of his previous attempts. By an agreement already made with the court and the leaders of the defense, we are permitted to put in evidence authentic letters from witnesses to these scenes, which the defense is free to examine. Out of several cases of such outrages, we have decided to select one the clearest and most scandalous. I will, therefore, without further delay, call on my junior, Mr. Gould, to read two letters, one from the sub-warden and the other from the porter of Breakspear College in Cambridge University. Gould jumped up with a jerk like a jack-in-the-box, an academic-looking paper in his hand and a fever of importance on his face. He began in a loud, high, cockney voice that was as abrupt as a cock-crow. Sir, I am the sub-warden of Brykespear College, Cambridge. Have mercy on us, muttered Moon, making a backward movement as men do when a gun goes off. I am the sub-warden of Brykespear College, Cambridge, proclaimed the uncompromising Moses, and I can endorse the description you gave of the unhappy smith. It was not alone my unfortunate duty to rebuke many of the lesser violences of his undergraduate period, but I was actually a witness to the last iniquity which terminated that period. I happened to pass in under the house of my friend the warden of Brykespear, which is semi-detached from the college and connected with it by two or three very ancient arches or props, like bridges, across a small strip of water connected with the river. To my grave astonishment... I beheld my eminent friend suspended in mid-air and clinging to one of these pieces of masonry, his appearance and attitude indicating that he suffered from the gravest apprehensions. After a short time, I heard two very loud shots and distinctly perceived the unfortunate undergraduate Smith leaning far out of the warden's window 
and aiming at the warden repeatedly with a revolver. Upon seeing me, Smith burst into a loud laugh, in which impertinence was mingled with insanity, and appeared to desist. I sent the college porter for a ladder, and he succeeded in detaching the warden from his painful position. Smith was sent down. The photograph I enclose is from the group of the University Rifle Club Prizemen, and represents him as he was when at the college. I am your obedient servant, Amos Bolter. The other letter, continued Gould in a glow of triumph, is from the porter, and won't take long to read. Dear Sir, it is quite true that I am the porter of Brikespear College, and that I helped the warden down when the young man was shooting at him, as Mr. Bolter has said in his letter. The young man who was shooting at him was Mr. Smith, the same that is in the photograph Mr. Bolter sends. Yours respectfully, Samuel Barker. Gould handed the two letters across to Moon, who examined them. But for the vocal divergences in the matter of H's and A's, the subwarden's letter was exactly as Gould had rendered it, and both that and the porter's letter were plainly genuine. Moon handed them to Inglewood, who handed them back in silence to Moses Gould. So far as this first charge of continual attempted murder is concerned, said Dr. Pym, standing up for the last time, that is my case. Michael Moon rose for the defense with an air of depression, which gave little hope at the outset to the sympathizers with the prisoner. He did not, he said, propose to follow the doctor into the abstract questions. I do not know enough to be an agnostic, he said rather wearily, and I can only master the known and admitted elements in such controversies. As for science and religion, the known and admitted facts are plain enough. All that the parsons say is unproved. All that the doctors say is disproved. That's the only difference between science and religion there's ever been, or ever will be. Yet these new discoveries touch me, somehow, he said, looking down sorrowfully at his boots. They remind me of a dear old great-aunt of mine who used to enjoy them in her youth. It brings tears to my eyes. I can see the old bucket by the garden fence and the line of shimmering poplars behind. Hi, here, stop the boss a bit, cried Mr. Moses Gould, rising in a sort of perspiration. We want to give the defense a fair run, like gents, you know, but any gent would draw the line at shimmering poplars. Well, hang it all, said Moon in an injured manner. If Dr. Pym may have an old friend with ferrets, why mayn't I have an old aunt with poplars? I am sure, said Mrs. Duke, bridling with something almost like a shaky authority, Mr. Moon may have what aunts he likes. Why, as to liking her, began Moon, I... But, perhaps, as you say, she is scarcely the core of the question. I repeat that I do not mean to follow the abstract speculations. For, indeed, my answer to Dr. Pym is simple and severely concrete. Dr. Pym has only treated one side of the psychology of murder. If it is true that there is a kind of man who has a natural tendency to murder, is it not equally true? Here he lowered his voice and spoke with a crushing quietude and earnestness. 
Is it not equally true that there is a kind of man who has a natural tendency to get murdered? Is it not at least a hypothesis holding the field that Dr. Warner is such a man? I do not speak without the book any more than my learned friend. The whole matter is expounded in Dr. Moonenshine's monumental work, The Destructible Doctor, with diagrams showing the various ways in which such a person as Dr. Warner may be resolved into his elements. In the light of these facts... Hi, stop the bus, stop the bus, cried Moses, jumping up and down and gesticulating in great excitement. My principal's got something to say. My principal wants to do a bit of talking. Dr. Pym was indeed on his feet, looking pallid and rather vicious. I have strictly confined myself, he said nasally, to books to which immediate reference can be made. I have Sonnenschein's destructive type here on the table, if the defense wished to see it. Where is this wonderful work on destructibility Mr. Moon is talking about? Does it exist? Can he produce it? Produce it? cried the Irishman with a rich scorn. I'll produce it in a week if you'll pay for the ink and paper. Would it have much authority? asked Pym, sitting down. Oh, authority, said Moon lightly. That depends on a fellow's religion. Dr. Pym jumped up again. Our authority is based on masses of accurate detail, he said. It deals with a region in which things can be handled and tested. My opponent will at least admit that death is a fact of experience. Not of mine, said Moon mournfully, shaking his head. I've never experienced such a thing in all my life. Well, really, said Dr. Pym, and sat down sharply amid a crackle of papers. So we see resumed Moon in the same melancholy voice, that a man like Dr. Warner is, in the mysterious workings of evolution, doomed to such attacks. My client's onslaught, even if it occurred, was not unique. I have in my hand letters from more than one acquaintance of Dr. Warner, whom that remarkable man has affected in the same way. Following the example of my learned friends, I will read only two of them. The first is from an honest and laborious matron living off the Harrow Road. Mr. Moon, sir. Yes, I did throw a saucepan at him. What then? It was all I had to throw, all the soft things being pawned. And if your Dr. Warner doesn't like having saucepans thrown at him, don't let him wear his hat in a respectable woman's parlor. And tell him to leave or smiling or tell us the joke. Yours respectfully, Hannah Miles. The other letter is from a physician of some note in Dublin, with whom Dr. Warner was once engaged in consultation. He writes as follows. Dear Sir, The incident to which you refer is one which I regret and which, moreover, I have never been able to explain. My own branch of medicine is not mental, and I should be glad to have the view of a mental specialist on my singular, momentary, and indeed almost automatic action. To say that I pulled Dr. Werner's nose is, however, inaccurate, 
in a respect that strikes me as important. That I punched his nose, I must cheerfully admit. I need not say with what regret. But pulling seems to me to imply a precision of objective with which I cannot reproach myself. In comparison with this, the act of punching was an outward, instantaneous, and even natural gesture. Believe me, yours faithfully, Burton Lestrange. I have numberless other letters, continued Moon, all bearing witness to this widespread feeling about my eminent friend, and I therefore think that Dr. Pym should have admitted this side of the question in his survey. We are in the presence, as Dr. Pym so truly says, of a natural force. As soon stay the cataract of the London waterworks, as stay the great tendency of Dr. Warner to be assassinated by somebody. Place that man in a Quaker's meeting among the most peaceful of Christians, and he will immediately be beaten to death with sticks of chocolate. Place him among the angels of the New Jerusalem, and he will be stoned to death with precious stones. Circumstances may be beautiful and wonderful, the average may be heart-upholding, the harvester may be golden-bearded, the doctor may be secret-guessing, the cataract may be iris-lipped, the Anglo-Saxon infant may be brave-browed, but against and above all these prodigies, the grand, simple tendency of Dr. Warner to get murdered will still pursue its way until it happily and triumphantly succeeds at last. He pronounced this peroration with an appearance of strong emotion, but even stronger emotions were manifesting themselves on the other side of the table. Dr. Warner had leaned his large body quite across the little figure of Moses Gould and was talking in excited whispers to Dr. Pym. That expert nodded a great many times and finally started to his feet with a sincere expression of sternness. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he cried indignantly, "'as my colleague has said, we should be delighted to give any latitude to the defense, if there were a defense. But Mr. Moon seems to think he is here to make jokes. Very good jokes, I dare say, but not at all adapted to assist his client. He picks holes in science. He picks holes in my client's social popularity.' He picks holes in my literary style, which doesn't seem to suit his high-toned European taste. But how does this picking of holes affect the issue? This smith has picked two holes in my client's hat, and with an inch better aim would have picked two holes in his head. All the jokes in the world won't unpick those holes or be any use for the defense. Inglewood looked down in some embarrassment, as if shaken by the evident fairness of this. But Moon still gazed at his opponent in a dreamy way. "'The defense,' he said vaguely. "'Oh, I haven't begun that yet.' "'You certainly have not,' said Pym warmly amid a murmur of applause from his side, which the other side found it impossible to answer. "'Perhaps, if you have any defense,' which has been doubtful from the very beginning. While you're standing up, said Moon, in the same almost sleepy style, perhaps I might ask you a question. A question? Certainly. 
said Pym, stiffly. It was distinctly arranged between us that as we could not cross-examine the witnesses, we might vicariously cross-examine each other. We are in a position to invite all such inquiry. I think you said, observed Moon absently, that none of the prisoner's shots really hit the doctor. For the cause of science, cried the complacent Pym, fortunately not. Yet they were fired from a few feet away. Yes, about four feet. And no shots hit the warden, though they were fired quite close to him, too, asked Moon. That is so, said the witness gravely. I think, said Moon, suppressing a slight yawn, that your sub-warden mentioned that Smith was one of the university's record men for shooting. Why, as to that, began Pym, after an instant of stillness, a second question, continued Moon comparatively curtly. You said there were other cases of the accused trying to kill people. Why have you not got evidence of them? The American planted the points of his fingers on the table again. In those cases, he said precisely, there was no evidence from outsiders, as in the Cambridge case, but only the evidence of the actual victims. Why didn't you get their evidence? In the case of the actual victims, said Pym, there was some difficulty and reluctance, and... Do you mean, asked Moon, that none of the actual victims would appear against the prisoner? That would be exaggerative, began the other. A third question, said Moon, so sharply that everyone jumped. You've got the evidence of the sub-warden who heard some shots. Where's the evidence of the warden himself who was shot at? The warden of Breakspear lives, a prosperous gentleman. We did ask for a statement from him, said Pym a little nervously, but it was so eccentrically expressed that we suppressed it out of deference to an old gentleman whose past services to science have been great. Moon leaned forward. You mean, I suppose, he said, that his statement was favorable to the prisoner. It might be understood so, replied the American doctor. But really, it was difficult to understand at all. In fact, we sent it back to him. You have no longer, then, any statement signed by the warden of Breakspear? No. I only ask, said Michael quietly, because we have. To conclude my case, I will ask my junior, Mr. Inglewood, to read a statement of the true story a statement attested as true by the signature of the warden himself. Arthur Inglewood rose with several papers in his hand, and, though he looked somewhat refined and self-effacing, as he always did, the spectators were surprised to feel that his presence was, upon the whole, more efficient and sufficing than his leader's. He was, in truth, one of those modest men who cannot speak until they are told to speak, and then can speak well. Moon was entirely the opposite. His own impudences amused him in private, but they slightly embarrassed him in public. 
He felt a fool while he was speaking, whereas Inglewood felt a fool only because he could not speak. The moment he had anything to say, he could speak, and the moment he could speak, speaking seemed quite natural. Nothing in this universe seemed quite natural to Michael Moon. As my colleague has just explained, said Inglewood, there are two enigmas or inconsistencies on which we base the defense. The first is a plain physical fact. By the admission of everybody, by the very evidence adduced by the prosecution, it is clear that the accused was celebrated as a specially good shot. Yet on both the occasions complained of, he shot from a distance of four or five feet, and shot at him four or five times, and never hit him once. That is the first startling circumstance on which we base our argument. The second, as my colleague has urged, is the curious fact that we cannot find a single victim of these alleged outrages to speak for himself. Subordinates speak for him. Porters climb up ladders to him. But he himself is silent. Ladies and gentlemen, I propose to explain on the spot both the riddle of the shots and the riddle of the silence. I will first of all read the covering letter in which the true account of the Cambridge incident is contained, and then that document itself. When you have heard both, there will be no doubt about your decision. The covering letter runs as follows. Dear Sir, the following is a very exact and even vivid account of the incident as it really happened at Breakspear College. We, the undersigned, do not see any particular reason why we should refer it to any isolated authorship. The truth is, it has been a composite production, and we have even had some difference of opinion about the adjectives. But every word of it is true. We are yours faithfully, Wilfred Emerson Eames, Warden of Breakspear College, Cambridge, Innocent Smith. That concludes today's chapter reading. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me, my podcast, and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thanks for listening, and tune in again this Saturday, August 14th, for Chapter 6, Part 2.